please keep your Bibles open to uh, 2 Corinthians 12, and you might find the outline in the bulletin. Now, have you ever heard people say, it's not what you believe that's important, it's how you live that counts, right? It doesn't matter what you believe, it's not, it's not doctrine that's important, it's actually how you live that's the important thing. Now, many, many non-Christians uh, have said it to me over the years, uh, and I guess it's quite understandable that some of them would think that way. But what is not understandable is when Christians say the same thing. Yeah, I'm using this one. This one is just here, for sure. Mm, okay. Now, the Apostle Paul would have considered such a statement that, you know, it's not important what you believe, it's just, you know, how you live that's important. He would have considered such a statement not only wrong, because it matters both what you believe and what you believe, but he would have considered it simplistic as well. Because what you believe, what you truly believe, actually gives rise to how you live. So turn with me a page back to chapter 11 and verse 3 and 4. And we see Paul there saying, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So you see, verse 4 shows us what the Corinthians have believed. They have, they have believed a different Jesus, uh, received a different gospel. And verse 3 shows us what that resulted in. The receiving of the different Jesus and different gospel resulted in a turning away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And obviously Paul is not just thinking there of what they believe, but holistically what they believe and how they lived. They were turned away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But you see, <clears throat> it also works the other way around. Sometimes you can see what a person truly believes from how they live their lives. You can see what a person truly believes from how they respond when they meet a difficult situation. Now, in this passage before us, what we see of Paul's response in this difficult situation, we see something of what the Apostle Paul truly believes, truly clings on to. Now, it is uh, not an easy passage, uh, but I think it holds a lot of things for us to learn from. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we are reminded that we have not come together to hear a man speak, but we have come to hear you speak. And Father, we are confident that you, in your word, through your spirit, are speaking to us. And give us ears to hear, hearts that we obey. To your glory and for our blessing we pray. Amen. 
Uh, we need to be reminded of the background uh, that the Apostle Paul, as you know, was the one who came to Corinth and founded the church. But after he left, there were uh, false teachers, uh, rival Jewish leaders who had come in and they were leaders who were very much in the mold of what the world considered impressive. And so what these leaders did was that they, they boasted a lot, boasted about what they knew, boasted about their speech, boasted about their experiences. And all this was so that they could put the Apostle Paul down and have the church give them allegiance instead. And so Paul, in a way, uh, to defend himself, has been forced to counter by boasting. Now we've seen Paul uh, have to do this the last few weeks. And he's come to the end of the boasting. But what he tells us in verse 11 is that part of the blame for why he's been forced to boast lies not only on the false teachers that have come in and started boasting, part of the blame lies on the Corinthians themselves. Because if they had defended him, they would, he would not have had to boast. Look with me to verse 11 of chapter 12. He says, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. You see, they should have defended him. He was their apostle. If they did not keep silent, when these uh, new arrivals, these false teachers came in with their boasting, if they had spoke up for him, spoken up for him, then he would not have had to resort to being a fool and having to defend himself this way. But instead, they kept silent. So here in this uh, last few sections, Paul makes a final push. A final push to get the Corinthians to acknowledge that he is indeed their authentic apostle doing authentic ministry. And he leads them to see three things that he does which is authentic. And the first one is the authentic signs that he performs. Look with me to verse 12. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Now when you read the book of Acts, you see various examples of signs and wonders that Paul performed uh, with the power of God. Uh, in Acts 13, we see uh, he turns a sorcerer blind. In Acts 14, he heals a lame man uh, simply by commanding him to stand up. In Acts 16, he performs a successful exorcism of a slave girl. Again, just with a command. So, uh, many examples of how the Apostle Paul, under God, performed signs and wonders. But notice that in verse 12, signs and wonders and miracles are some things that are distinct from the marks of an Apostle. Okay, because he says, I perform the marks of an Apostle, including signs, wonders and miracles. So, these two things are separate. There's marks of the Apostle, which he did, and including signs, wonders, and miracles, which he did. So these two things are separate. So what are the marks of a true Apostle that he performs? What are these things? Well, 
I believe that what Paul is referring to is uh, to the founding of the church at Corinth. In other words, Paul's authenticity, that Paul is a true apostle doing true ministry, is that when he proclaimed the true gospel, the spirit was poured out, people were converted, and a church was founded in Corinth. That was, according to Paul, that's the mark of him being a true apostle. God worked through him, founding a church. Now this view is supported by Paul, uh, when Paul says that he persevered in performing the marks of an apostle. Now, when Paul speaks about his gospel ministry, he also speaks of him persevering, enduring, doing the gospel ministry in the face of trials and difficulties and weaknesses. So, uh, in other words, the marks of an apostle is talking about his authentic gospel ministry. And all this, right, is simply to get the Corinthians to no longer be silent, but to speak up for their apostle. Now, the second thing that he calls their attention to is his authentic sacrifice on their behalf. Verse 13 to 18, his authentic sacrifice. Look with me to verse 13 and 14 first. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So in verse 13 he says, He was never a burden. And verse 14, he says, when he comes the next time, the third time, he also says, I will still not be a burden. Now, what is this burden that he's talking about? Well, he is referring to being a financial burden on them. When Paul ministered among them, he made the decision. He refused to get financial support from them, preferring to be supported from other churches, uh, and preferring to work as a tent maker to support himself, he wanted to minister to them free of charge, to offer the gospel to them free of charge. So, I mean, that's a good thing, right? I mean, if uh, Andrew and I chose to do that, uh, that would be good for everyone here. But why would the Corinthian church have considered themselves inferior because Paul did that? I mean, they should rejoice and say, oh, that's good, now we can uh, you know, use the money we save for you know, other, other good purposes. Why would they have considered themselves inferior? Well, to understand this, we must know something of the background. Because the culture of that day, there would be traveling teachers and speakers. And the more reputable, the more famous, the more highly regarded teachers would command higher fees. So whereas, if you are a nothing, nobody teacher, you can only command very, very little fees. <clears throat> so just like uh, Desmond was telling me about when he got married, he was looking very hard for a good photographer. And so imagine if uh, one photographer came to him and said, hey, I'm willing to do your wedding photos for free. Then another guy comes and says, oh, I will only do it if you pay me $3,000. Uh, 
Now, immediately, the Singaporean mentality is that what? The $3,000 one is better. Right? That's why he can command $3,000. This guy who wants to do it, do it for free, only an amateur. You know, maybe one out of ten shots only will, will, will turn out right. So the mentality is the one who charges higher must be better. So it was exactly the same for this. Paul was looked down upon. He was, he was looked down upon. He, this guy must not be much. That's why he doesn't charge anything. And so the Corinthian church would have been tempted to think that ah, yeah, other churches got better teachers who charge more money. We, we got this amateur, we got this lousy teacher who can't even charge anything. But Paul tries to tenderly explain to them that it is out of love for you. It is out of love for you as a parent for children that I'm making this sacrifice. It is not because he is an inferior apostle, but it was out of love that he did not want to burden them. Now, strange as it may seem to us, Paul's decision to not financially burden the Corinthians led to another accusation that was thrown at him. Look with me to verse 16 to 18. Verse 16. Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Now, he is here accused of being a crafty fellow. He's he's being accused of being a a con man. Now, how? (laughs) By not accepting, you know, a monetary reward from them, how could he be accused of being a con man? Well, what was happening was that rumor got started, you know, most likely by the false teachers that, you see, this Paul, you look at him like he comes and then he doesn't charge any fees. That's all an act. That's just to get you to think that he's a man of integrity. But you see, when he comes, he doesn't charge anything. But after he goes, he sends Titus and he sends this brother and they come to do what? To collect money. Of course, they say, this money is for the, the poor, huh? the persecuted huh? in Jerusalem. But we know when they take the money from us, it will go to Paul's own pockets. See, so that was the accusation that was being made at Paul. And it is an outrageous accusation. And you see, Paul, when he defends himself here, he, he shoots off a few rhetorical questions. Now, I'm told that the, the grammar in these questions, okay, the, the, the Greek grammar here is broken. He's, he's, when he's writing this, he's writing broken Greek. And the most likely reason is because in, in defending himself against such an outrageous accusation, Paul is having this an intensity of emotion. How could you accuse me of this? And I've actually witnessed this. You know, when uh, Andrew is here, he always talks about his relative, right? Yeah. So I also tell you a story about my relative. 
So I've actually seen firsthand this relative of mine who was accused by his brother. His brother stays overseas. And when his brother came back, uh, and he, you know, sitting around a family table, actually made the flippant remark that this relative of mine was not giving adequate care to their elderly parents. And so, this relative of mine, when he, I will not say he was on the phone talking to his brother, and, you know, he, he was, he was emotional, the face was red, and it, when he was talking on the phone, he was all broken English because there was such an intensity of emotion. And Paul here is, I think, exactly doing that. Facing this outrageous accusation, he defends himself. You know, those I sent, you know, exploited were you? You know, exploited by them, exploited by me? You know, it's broken grammar because it's such an outrageous accusation. And Paul's defense, essentially, is that Titus and the brother that I sent, they walked and conducted themselves with observable integrity. The way they conducted themselves were beyond reproach. You know, anyone can make accusation. But what in their manner, what in the way they conducted themselves, you know, is there any grounds for this accusation? See, the reality is that Paul's ministry to the Corinthians had been one of hard-working sacrifice. And it was out of love for them from beginning to end. And he urges them to recognize this and reject the false teachers and come back again to their apostle. The third thing that he tells them is that he has authentic fears for them. So he performed authentic signs He did authentic sacrifices, and now he has authentic fears for them. Verse 19 to 21. Let's look first at verse 19. He says, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Now, even though if you look at uh, the last few chapters, what Paul has done, you know, blatantly, explicitly, has been, I mean, he has been defending himself. But he says, I, you think I've been defending myself, but I'm not. Because what he means there is that I am not just defending myself. I mean, it is easy to do that, right? When you are slandered, when you, um, you know, rumors or gossips get spread about you, it is easy to simply have as your final objective the restoration of your reputation, the, the defense of your name. You can have that simply as your final goal. But Paul is saying, yes, I have been defending myself, but that's not my ultimate objective. My, my ultimate goal has been for your strengthening, your building up. He is genuinely concerned. Not just for his name. He is genuinely concerned for them, for their spiritual health, for their spiritual well-being. And in verses 20 to 21, he shares some of his fears for them. Let's look at what he says. 
Verse 20. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Now let me ask, can you see what's the difference between the list of sins in verse 20 uh, compared with verse 21? In verse 21, obviously he's talking about sexual sins. And because of the place that Corinth was, sexual sins was something that was uh, endemic to them. Because in the ancient world, Corinth had such a reputation of uh, being a city where there was a lot of sexual sin happening that to call someone a Corinthian girl was a euphemism for calling them a prostitute. And to say, oh, you are, you know, you are Corinthianizing is saying that someone is engaging in debauchery. So, because Corinth was so well known for its prostitutes and uh, all the sexual sins, that this was a place that uh, posed these ongoing problems to the church. Now, the other thing that's different about verse 20, if you look carefully at verse 21, is that Paul is very sure Okay, that the sins in verse 21 is happening and continues to happen. Right? He talks specifically about people who have sinned earlier, he knows they have sinned earlier, and yet have not come to repentance. Okay, so he knows that the, the list in verse 21 is ongoing, but he's hoping that they have repented. Now, the, the list in verse 20, you see carefully that he says, I fear that there may be. See the difference? One, in verse 21, he's sure it's happening. In verse 20, the list of sins that there, he says, I fear that there may be. Now when we did Bible study on this on Thursday, uh, there were people's translations which didn't have the word maybe. So I made sure I checked the Greek, and the word perhaps is there in the Greek. Okay, So it is there. So point, perhaps, Perhaps there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Okay, look. So the difference is, uh, one is very sure it's happening. The list in verse 20, perhaps, perhaps there may be. Now why perhaps? Why does he say perhaps? Because how you live is connected with what you believe. And so Paul is concerned that the different Jesus, the different gospel that they have received is very much encouraging rather than restraining the sins of discord, jealousy, selfish ambition, etc., etc. Now, you could argue that the common features in the list that's given in verse 20, right, the long list there, I think you could argue that it can be summarized as the lack of humility, 
and there's a lot of self-centeredness. Like what these sins have in common is a lack of humility and a lot of self-centeredness. So what sort of different Jesus and different Gospels are the Corinthians believing that is leading Paul to fear that perhaps the sins related to the lack of humility uh, is being encouraged rather than being restrained. Now, the simple answer is no one knows. Uh. I mean, Paul doesn't give enough clues in 2 Corinthians itself to say for sure uh, exactly what was the different Jesus, different gospel that the false teachers were teaching. Like, you know, scholars can make a good guess, but uh, there isn't enough evidence in 2 Corinthians itself to know for sure exactly what it is. My friends, if we, if we consider in our day, in our day, what are the different Jesuses, the different Gospels that are being proclaimed, I think we can see the connection between what people believe resulting in how they live. So what are the different Jesuses being presented today? Well, surely it is a different Jesus to the one that is found in the Bible. Surely it is a different Jesus who promises nothing but health and wealth and joy and fulfillment and wisdom now and forevermore. Surely that is a different Jesus to the one that we see in the Bible. And surely it is a different Jesus who requires us to contribute something to the saving work He does. Surely it is a different Jesus who needs us to contribute our decent lives, who who needs us to contribute our good works, who needs us to perform certain ceremonies or rituals to to complement, to contribute to the saving work He's trying to do. Friends, don't you see that either of these two different Jesuses contribute to a lack of humility, contribute to growing self-centeredness. Because if it's a Jesus who promises you nothing but health and wealth now, then what you are encouraged to see is that you are the prince. You are the princess of this king. And so if you are the prince, you are the princess of this king, then how can I as the prince or the princess you know, suffer this financial burden? How can I, as a prince of the heavenly king, you know, suffer these, these ill health and have these you know, illnesses happen to my family? No, I'm the prince. I'm entitled to good health. So I'm really the prince. I'm entitled to, to, to a higher than normal standard of living. See, it results in a lack of humility. It results in growing self-centeredness. And again, if it is the Jesus who needs you to contribute your, your steady performance of Christian living, if it is the Jesus who needs you to perform certain ceremonies and rituals, you know, to take all the right boxes, to contribute that to his saving work, it also breeds the lack of humility and encourages self-centeredness. Because why? If you happen to meet the standard, you can pat yourselves legitimately on the back. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus needs me to contribute these things. Hey, and I have. Yeah, by the grace of God, I have. Wow. Well done, I contributed. And then, it gives you a valid reason to look down on those who haven't. He hasn't. Again, he fails. But we have. We have. It contributes to a lack of humility and growing self-centeredness. But you see, the real Jesus, the real gospel actually does encourage real humility and increasing other-centeredness. Because in the real Jesus, in the real gospel, what we have is that we see more clearly that we are more evil and wicked than we realize. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and cherished than we could ever imagine. And all this is because of grace. Pure grace. All this is because of the Son who came not to be served, but to serve others. You see, friends, it is the same for Paul. Behind his authentic ministry. Right, we've, we've seen glimpses of in this chapter and throughout 2 Corinthians. Behind his authentic ministry is because he has believed truly and firmly in the authentic message. What he has believed has resulted in him doing ministry this way. Ministry is governed by message. I want to show you what I mean by zooming in on one verse. There are a few verses in this passage, we could, we could do it, but I want to just zoom in on verse 15 and ask two questions. Ask, what does it mean? And ask, what made him able to do this in verse 15? Verse 15, Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What does it mean? Friends, it means that authentic ministry is costly. Whether financially, physically, spiritually, or emotionally, there is a high price to pay in authentic ministry. Now, don't sit there and get the wrong idea that this somehow applies only to you know, full-time workers like me. No. It applies to every one of us who call ourselves Christian because every Christian is involved in the ministry, are we not? So whether you're doing kids' church or you lead a Bible study or you're a member of a Bible study group or you, know, you come to church and, and you are tasked with encouraging one another, all of us are in the ministry. How it applies might be different but be sure that it does apply. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls, Paul says. And when he says this, he is not saying this to a church that values its ministry, that is appreciative of the sacrifices it's made. This is, see, it, it's not me saying this to BTPC where there is love, there's appreciation, there's thankfulness, and it's easy for uh, a pastor of this church to be encouraged to say that and to mean that and to want to do that. But Paul, 
He was saying this to a church that was making outrageous accusations at him. This was, this was, this was a church who had uh, thrown their allegiance away from him and, and started believing false teachers instead. This is a church that has turned away from him and not returned his love. And still, Paul's attitude to them is that he is willing. In fact, he says he is most gladly willing. Willing to pour out and be poured out for them. That his time and energy, his resources, even his very life, Paul gladly devotes to the goal of seeing them come to maturity that he will gladly devote all these things to seeing them come to, to a growing likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will gladly spend and be spent for their souls. So the second question is, what made him able to do it? Well, as we've said, fundamentally, what made him able to do it? Fundamentally, it was what he had come to see and believe about Jesus Christ. That the true Jesus was one who, though he was rich, yet for Paul's sake, became poor. So that through his poverty, Paul might become rich. This was what he had come to see and believe about Jesus. And in our responsive reading in uh, chapter 5, let me get you to turn to chapter 5 and we'll look at two verses and then we're done. And we'll look at verse 14 and 15. See what Paul says. Verse 14, chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced. We are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. Him who died for them and was raised again. You see, Paul, Paul is compelled. He is driven, he is energized, he is compelled by the one who had first come. The one who had first come to spend and be spent for him. And the one who came to spend and be spent was completely spent. Even to the point of death for Paul and for us. Our old selves have died with Christ and we have new life in Him. We have new lives that should no longer live for ourselves but for Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. And Paul shows us, Paul shows us, does it not, what it means to live for Him. What it now means no longer to live for Himself but to live for Him. That for the sake of those for whom Christ died, for the sake of those for whom Christ died. In Paul's case, it was the Corinthians, it was the churches that he has on his heart. For me, for us, is each other. Look around. Who do you see? You see people for whom Christ came to spend and be spent. And so Paul shows us what it means to no longer live for himself, but to live for this one. That for the sake of those for whom Christ died, 
Paul is most gladly willing to follow in his master's footsteps to spend and be spent for the souls. Friends, we say we believe in the gospel. If we really do, we dare not be content with anything less than this. May God help us.